Welcome to Echo. My name is Steve. I'm one of the elders here at the church. We're glad that you are with us today, uh, especially since we are starting a new teaching series that we're going to run through the first part of this fall here. And generally what we do during this time, and we, you know, we've been in the habit of doing it, is we always open up the scriptures to try to see what uh, the Bible has to say about certain instances. Very often here, we tend to go through entire books at a time, but when the teaching team got together this fall, we were very much like, look, we want to talk about the Gospels, but we don't want to go all the way through one of the books. So we all just came and brainstormed and said, let's just do a series that we entitled Jesus and, and the and is going to be a topic that we try to grapple with and show what Jesus had to say or do, interact around a certain topic. So, uh, interesting thing, I think, for us for the next few weeks. Since I get to introduce it, I'll always start with a caveat because I'm a theologian. And when it gets to this topic, so many people cling to those Gospels, those first four books in the New Testament, because we love stories about Jesus, because Jesus is the coolest dude ever. Do you like how I was, like, hip and related right there? Jesus was the coolest dude ever. But the thing is, one of the reasons that we like to talk about Jesus all the time is that there's just a large swatch of material that Jesus does not talk about at all. And then we're like, well, that's awesome. It's why we like him more, because then we're like, everything else that he doesn't say, it's all good in the hood. But that is not how we need to approach the whole of Scripture. So understand is that we believe that the Scriptures are inspired, that God spoke to the authors of that, and in doing so, that God's Word exists beyond just even the story of Jesus. So we don't want to minimize Jesus, neither do we want to maximize his role. So as we go through this, you're going to be reading through things, you're going to be like, wait, Jesus doesn't say anything about X. Well, that doesn't mean that the Bible then doesn't say anything about it altogether. So we get to start off this series with a compelling topic, and it was one of my own choosing. Yes, friends, we are starting today to talk about Satan, which is a great uplifting topic because everybody wants to talk about Satan, right? I mean, you know, when I think about compelling, inspiring topics, I always think about Satan. But here's something that's interesting is that I've preached the better part of 20 years in various churches for here on and off, you know, for like 13 years. And I don't think I've ever done an entire sermon on Satan. And this gave me the opportunity to do so. And it is actually a topic that I'm very interested in because of this. When it comes to Satan, we are usually dualistic in nature in the way that we view who Satan is. For some of us, we just live in constant fear and dread of Satan. That some of you will say his name more frequently than the name of Jesus because you're like, look, friends, you know, I know stuff's going out. That's because Satan, he is, he's got his crosshairs on me. Like Satan's bearing down. Like Satan's getting ready to bring it down. So we need to watch out for the Satan. And the, the thing that I have with that, the issue that I take there is very often we use Satan as like this external excuse from ourselves and any action of individuals. Just recently, it's a tragic public story, but there was a large church where the minister uh, was basically like a sexual predator and, and would prey upon women. And I remember coming out of that, I read an article online where somebody just said, you see, we have to watch it because Satan will get his fingers into anything and that's why we have to watch these big churches. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. It's like, hold the phone. Like, it's not like Satan was just like, you know, what would be great would be for you to prey upon this young woman. It's not like Satan did it and this person's without excuse. We kind of believe like Satan possesses us and therefore all acts that happen underneath the umbrella of Satan do not apply to me. 
right? That's a perspective. I think there's another perspective of Satan too, and that is the idea that we do not acknowledge him at all. So maybe in this topic, you're just like, look, because of the way I've heard people deal with Satan, because of some of the things that have been said about him, I'm just like, I'm not going to think about him. And if I don't think about him, then he, you know, he just has no place at all. And then we'll just ignore the idea that Satan exists. And like most things, there's a middle ground that we need to figure out. And fortunately for us, as we begin this series on Jesus, we see that Jesus had multiple occasions in which he personally interacted with Satan I think it's a lesson for us. So we're going to be in the book of Matthew. And one of the reasons that I haven't done really this sermon before is because we're going to jump around a lot through the book. Usually I like to take a text and just rip it apart and just really dive into that. This is, we're going to jump quite a few chapters here. So it's going to be an interesting journey I want you to keep with me. But it's going to take predominantly place in the New Testament book of Matthew. I don't have, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. Does somebody have a page number for me in a blue Bible? 682 in the Blue Bible, or if you have your digital, you can start at Matthew 4. That's where we're going to be. But before we dive into that, I want to show something about the stories that we're going to examine over the next weeks. Because I don't know if, you know, a lot of us know this, the New Testament is the account in the Bible that generally starts with the birth of Jesus and ends to the establishment of the first church. The first four books of the New Testament are called Gospels, and they all have different retellings of the story of Jesus. And you might be like, you know, that's a repetitive and redundant and repetitive and redundant way to present a life. But understand this, is that each of the gospel writers are trying to bring out certain aspects of the story of Jesus to a particular audience so that they understand it better. And that's something that good storytellers do, right? Sometimes you'll tell a story, the same story, in different ways depending on your audience. And that's what we have in the Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew was written by a man, Matthew, who was a tax collector by trade. And Matthew happened to be Jewish as was all of the people that Jesus came to represent. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And in this account then of Jesus' life, what Matthew is trying to do is convince people who were Jews but didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He's trying to show how Jesus really is the Messiah of the Jewish people. And he does this in an interesting, nuanced way that sometimes we overlook. But what Jesus does, is he, or what Matthew does, is he tries to parallel the life of Jesus with the life of God's people, specifically God's people in the book of Exodus. So even if we're not very churched people, we might know that story of Exodus, right? Has to deal with Moses. God's people were enslaved by the Egyptians. And Moses, through the power of God, is able to lead them out. What Matthew is trying to do in his book is take Jesus' life on a very similar trajectory, I don't know if you've read about this, but earlier here in Matthew chapter 2, when King Herod, the bad king who wanted to kill all the babies, right? When he was on his rampage, Jesus' family took him to Egypt. And I believe this is the working of the Holy Spirit because what Matthew tries to say is like, look, just like our people were enslaved in Egypt, Jesus had to flee to Egypt because of a maniacal leader, right? So then what we see immediately after that in Matthew chapter 3 is Jesus is baptized. But when God's people were leaving Egypt, remember that they were caught along a large body of water, the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army was approaching behind them. And what does God do? He splits the water. And friends, elsewhere in in the Bible, we see that this going through the Red Sea is an illustration of baptism. And Jesus was baptized. And what Matthew is trying to show is just, 
similarly, God's people were baptized when they left Egypt. And then here in Matthew chapter 4, we get this experience where, as we know, God's people coming out of the Red Sea were in the wilderness for 40 years. The experience we see in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, is that Jesus finds himself in the wilderness. And how long is he in the wilderness? For 40 days. All right, all this, stick with me. We're going to have a fun little trip that we're going to take here this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Jesus encounters Satan, he always responded with scripture. Because he's like, I'm going to stick the word of God back in your face and show you that it is larger than your words. Okay, so again, in the relationship between God and Satan, it's not as if they're equals, a yin to the yang, that Satan is God's counterpart. At the same time, we know that Satan was a fallen angel, and therefore, the only power he ever had is what God allowed him to have. And in this conversation, though, he is able to try to use words to try to trip Jesus up. And notice what Jesus' posture at this point was. 40 days in the wilderness without food, dude was hungry. Friends, he might, and it's, you know, anger is biblical. There's such a thing as righteous anger. So Jesus might have even been hangry in this instance in Scripture. So what is the temptation that the devil uses at this point? Jesus, have some bread. Now you might think for the Son of God, that's not a convincing thing, but I would offer... That, friends, bread is far more of a temptation, not just to Jesus, but to us, than we ever allow ourselves. You've been there. I've been there. You go to the nice restaurant. You're stoked because you're finally getting the steak. You know it's going to be prepared well. There are even side dishes that come, and the waitress asks you, would you like some bread? And unless you are a pagan of the highest form, you never deny free bread. So she puts it up you. And if you go to certain establishments, they give you butter with that bread. And the really Satan-esque establishments put a little cinnamon in it because they know that you cannot resist cinnamon butter. Right? The bread is there. You are very well aware that the waitress will soon bring out your main course. But you, in your naivety and your hunger, go for the bread. Because it's there to be taken. And what do you do? You fill yourself on bread, and you don't fill yourself in the meal. Yeah, you might have this reserved pot in your plate, and say, I can always take it with me. Then why did you go out to eat to have bread? Right? Because I'm telling you, there's something about bread. Matthew shows that this bread incident isn't just about Jesus, but he's trying to make the Jewish readers remember, hey, what happened in the Exodus? Because when God's people were in the wilderness, they're marching along and they start to complain as they were prone to do. Specifically, in Exodus chapter 16, they start to complain about the food situation in the wilderness. 
And we read that the Israelites said to Moses and the leaders, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, which I love this. It's like, hey, God just freed us from Exodus. If only God had killed us before we even left is what they exclaimed. That's like great perspective right here. Why? Because in Egypt, we sat around pots of meat ate all the food we wanted because, but you've brought us into this desert to starve us to death, right? So they, Jesus is without bread. He's just like, hey, devil, man's not going to live on bread alone. There's something bigger than this. The Israelites are like, screw this. We want the free bread and the cinnamon butter because it was better. We might have been in slavery, but at least the subpar meat that came from the place, you know, like from the bad meat store, at least that was better than being in the desert. This posture of complaining. Matthew introduces that here, and then we have to see what he does throughout the book. So turn with me, if you will now, a few pages forward to Matthew chapter 14. And in Matthew chapter 14, big chapter, I'm going to go um, not through the whole chapter, but starting in verses 14... If you can just see that, if you have a Bible there, there's a heading under this. The heading says, Jesus feeds the 5,000. So then, even if we're not biblical scholars, many of us remember that, hey, Jesus had a miracle involved with feeding people. Remember that? Like, Jesus is out preaching. He's there all day, and these 5,000 people, plus women and children, so that crowd could have been even much larger. You know what? He's just, like, teaching, and they're like, this is awesome. We love every word coming out of his mouth. But then it's not even that these people complain. They're not the Israelites in the desert, right? Jesus is just like, whoa, 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 whoa. These people are hungry. Jesus anticipates their need for food, right? So what happens? Five, the little boy, five loaves, two fishes, boom, buffet for all. He feeds them. Flip forward one more chapter, if you will. This is what I love. Maybe it's been a while since you've been in this text. Maybe you never have been. But this is what's interesting. Everybody talks about the feeding of the 5,000. But soon thereafter, we're talking just one chapter into the future, Jesus goes ahead and there's another crowd. This time there's 4,000 people. It's just like big crowd, not as big as the other one. You know, we're, we're adjusting size. You know, it's like this is more manageable for Jesus, right? Like the 5,000 was the stretch. Like let's pull it down to 4,000. Take 1,000 people out of the equation. No problem for Jesus because what's he doing? Jesus the bread man. He's the multiplier. He makes it happen. One of the things behind this story, one of the reasons I believe that Jesus wanted this to happen, and it plays into Matthew's storytelling, is that when God's people in Egypt complained, where's our bread? You know what God goes and says? He's like, look, I'm going to rain down bread for you. Rain and bread. I've wanted to build an ark the past couple days because this rain has been just stupid crazy. But I still prefer it to raining bread because the little flecks will get into your eyes. And like, I would rather have rain. I can, you know, I can saline that stuff out here. But bread comes in your eyes, that's the worst. But you know what? God's just like, look, y'all want your bread? I'm not just gonna give you bread on a platter. I'm gonna make it rain. Like, that's a reinterpretation of this, right? So God is raining bread down on the people, metaphorically now. Jesus is just like, hey, remember God made it rain to the Egyptians? I'm making it rain bread on you. Five loaves, boom, bread. Seven loaves, boom, more bread. And I love this at the end of both stories. It's like there are leftovers, right? Like that's the best thing too. 
Because you know you've been out to eat, and the free bread comes out, and you're like, this is really good bread, but you have a little bit more self-control, so you're like, the main course is coming out, I'll wait for this, but then you're like, man, I would love to take some of that bread home for me. Some of you, and I'm not even a seafood person, but when I go to the Red Lobster, and there's a few of them that still exist, I think, like the Red Lobster is going out of business. Start to patronize the Red Lobster. Why? Why? Because the biscuits, right? They are the most unholy, unhealthy thing that exists. But if I'm getting ready to leave the Red Lobster, and yes, I'm doing this on purpose, Garrett, like I'm adding the Red Lobster, okay? But when I get ready to leave the Red Lobster and the waitress says, would you like some bread to go? I'm like, lady, I'm married, but you have brought me into temptation, right? Like, I want those rolls to go, and for the next few days, I am just munching me on some Red Lobster biscuits because those are the best. Leftovers, leftover bread, that's good stuff. Jesus, he does his miracles, leftover bread. You guys are like, is this going somewhere? And I would love to tell you no just to mess with you, but it actually is, and this is where it gets good. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Because as much as Jesus is like, poof, bread, poof, bread, bread everywhere for everyone, some people missed out on the deal. Who missed out on the deal? The people who did not want to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his teaching. In both instances, it hit the end of the day. Remember, did the people say, Jesus, give us bread? No. He was like, look at these people. They are hungering for the word of God more than they are trying to live on bread alone And therefore, I'm going to provide them bread, right? It shows how Jesus is building a kingdom that is better than what the people of God originally had in the Exodus. But the people who love that story more than anyone else were the teachers of the law, and we see them at the beginning of Matthew chapter 16. These guys did not want to center to the teaching of Jesus. They didn't care. They saw Jesus as a threat to their way of life. Because if Jesus was who he said he was, if he was the Messiah, and even if he wasn't, but people were believing that, then they would leave the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They'd follow him, and that would be bad for business. They need to protect the status quo, and the way that they do this is not through submission, but it's through conflict. Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus, tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Hey, bread man, we know you're making it rain bread all over the people right here. We even know there's some fishies on the side that have been working with this, but just help us see this sign. Is Jesus buying it? He's not. Okay? He tells them, no bread for you, no signs from you, that's not why I'm here. I'm really not the bread guy. So Jesus takes his Boy Scout troop later, right? We're moving down to verses 5 and 6 of Matthew 16. So he's with the Boy Scout troop, and they're like, that was crazy, right? You know, all the raining bread, and then Jesus telling teachers, like, you're getting nothing. Like, this is, they're like, this is pretty cool. Verses 5 and 6. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Idiots, right? Like, there's one common theme right here. Okay? And at that same time, Jesus says this, like Jesus, teachable moment. Be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see verse 7, then they're just like, dude, what is he talking about? 
What is the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees? It's your fault, Bartholomew. You forgot the bread. Jesus catches this argument between them. They're like, what does he mean? And Jesus is like, look, guys, it's not because you brought too little bread. Jesus, aware of the discretion, asks, you have little faith. You're talking about not having bread. And then they understood the teaching that Jesus was going to give them. That the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and we know what yeast means to bread, right? This is what we have at communion. The reason why during communion we offer what is a bread chiclet, you're like, how does it retain that form? Because that bread has no yeast in it, so it is just flat chiclet in nature. Yeast is what makes it rise. What does teaching do? Teaching spreads concepts and ideas. What Jesus is saying is like, look, the yeast of those teachers is bad. Yeah, it's going to make something develop, but that's not good healthy bread, and that is not the thing that you should consume, right? It's a lot of talk about bread. Some of you gluten-free people are having hives. Stick with me. We're still moving forward. In verse 13, they end up going to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Sounds very biblical, doesn't it? It's just like, you know, if I gave you, you know, a couple words, you know, places like Cincinnati or Caesarea Philippi, which one's biblical? I think we figured that one out, right? Maybe you've heard of Caesarea Philippi by reading through the Bible. You know, named after Caesar. You can see Caesar, Philippi. There's lots of Philips and Philippians and stuff in the Bible. Just like it's, it's packaged, right, biblically. But something that we don't understand is that Caesarea Philippi was an interesting place. This is a picture which, you know, again, it's always tough to show images. But this is an image of Caesarea Philippi superimposed to show what the architecture of that time might have looked like. Caesarea Philippi was in the northern part of the land of Israel. Like, if you head up to Caesarea Philippi today, you're getting close to the border of Syria. Most of what everything that happens in the New Testament and Jesus' ministry is around the Sea of Galilee. This is miles north of that. So it's not like Jesus is just like, hey, you know, let's do a field trip. This is like a way out of the way journey. It's not just the distance that's interesting about Caesarea Philippi, but it's what it stood for. Because in the land of Israel, Caesarea Philippi was the most pagan place left in Israel. It was named after Caesar, right? Doesn't sound very biblical. Philippi is of a Greek origin too. And here's the interesting thing, is that the reason that this location was interesting, and I don't know if you can tell the topography, but you can see there's those buildings at the, at the lower part of the screen. There's, it's actually nestled into the side of a large rock wall, right? That's, that's, that's very high. Big piece of rock. Now, the reason that they set up these temples right here is that there was a hole in the ground right there that looked like it was so ominous that it became known as the gates of hell. The gates of hell. So Jesus is like, hey, you know what, guys? Let's take a filled trip to the edge of hell, right? Let's go see how things are happening in Satan's domain. And you can picture this because to get a good vista of things, you probably wouldn't approach it from the lower level. When Kelly and I were in Israel back in 2005, we didn't get a chance to go on top of the rock. But, you know, Jesus would have taken his Boy Scout troop up on the rock, right? 
So Jesus is like, let's go see hell. I didn't even mention this part because it's a little PG-13, but there was all sorts of nefarious things that happened in worship right here. This is very pagan, which pagan worship was very much sexual worship. There were, uh, you know, not just the sacrifice of animals, but sometimes the uh, mixing of species within the worship. You know, you know it, just, it is, it's, it's not... Um, it's not Disney church type stuff, right? I don't want to get too much in depth, but we know through architectural things, all sort of seedy little things happen. So Jesus is like, let's go for a life lesson. And, you know, then he's like standing over this place where all this icky stuff is happening below them. I love that because we don't think of Jesus as like, we always just think like he just walked around in white robes and everything was just pristine in his life. No, he's just like, let's go see where the people are making love with goats and, you know, have a lesson there. And I say that because historically that type of thing happens. So welcome to the land of the Bible. Jesus takes them there, and in the midst of this, he's just like, hey, who am I? And they're like, Jesus, it's tough to concentrate with the, far, the barnyard animals over here. He's like, no, 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 no. Who is Jesus? And there's all this speculation to which Peter, and we remember Peter, right? Peter's like, you know, he's, he's the top tier of the disciples, like Peter, like he, he's like the first pope, if you will, in some interpretation, right? Like Peter's A-lister. Peter comes out. He's just like, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is Matthew chapter 16. is one of the most seminal verses in the New Testament. The reason that they consider Peter to be the pope is because of what follows. Because Jesus says, Peter, you're just so right Blessed are you, for this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And the verse goes on where he's just like, you know what? His name was Simon. He's like, now I'm calling you Rocky. And that is the Greek word, you know, Petra comes from that. You know, also the awesome 80s rock band, if you've missed that. But Peter means rock. He's like, hey, man, you're Rocky now. And why it's one of the reasons he, he calls him that is because they are standing on the cliff, which is this big rock in Caesarea Philippi. And what he says is like, and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, and what will not prevail against that? What will not take over the kingdom of God? The gates of hell. He's just like saying, look, you're making your stand. You're rocky. You are the defender of the faith. We're on this rock overlooking the gates of hell. Satan ain't got nothing on me, right? Powerful life lesson. But what's interesting, and I love this, and this is a great verse. We usually just stop there and find some sort of lesson how we're all rocks or something, and that's beautiful and great. But people don't usually connect to the next part of the narrative. And this, friends, on this wild journey I've taken you on, we're getting to the promised land, even if the Israelites were not. Matthew chapter 16. Let me start with verse 21. So after this field trip there in northern Israel, Caesarea Philippi still in their thoughts. Jesus begins to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, for us who know the end of the story, we're like, that's a thing, right? We know how the story ends. But for these guys who have been following Jesus everywhere, he's the bread miracle maker. He, he raises people from the dead. He, he heals diseases. He does all this stuff. And Peter's like, or, and Jesus goes, by the way, my end game is death. 
I will be dead. These people who hate me will be the ones who do it. But it's okay because something bigger will happen as a result. So that's plain truth, right? Those are hard facts. Jesus is telling his disciples this. And by the way, the New Testament tells us on many occasions that Jesus said that same thing over and over again. But here we have the response that is different. In verse 22, our same guy, Rocky, takes Jesus aside. He's like, hey, Jesus, time out. Come here, sidebar, right? Takes Jesus aside, and he's like, look. This is Rocky speaking to you. Never. This will never happen to you. Why? Because I'm the rock, man. Do you smell what I am cooking? Bread, probably. This will never happen to you. Now, if this ends right there, you know, the, in the screenplay, the music is rising. It's just like, ah! And then it's just like, you know, William Wallace is like, freedom! And we're like, yeah! That's the ending. That's not what happens. Because in verse 23, Jesus turns and says to Rocky, Get behind me, Satan! Get behind me! You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is why I love this story. Just a few days earlier, they're on the rock. The whole animal, all that nasty stuff has happened down there. Who am I? Peter's like, I'll tell you who you are. You are the Messiah. You're going to kick butt and take names and redeem the names. You are it. And he's like, ding, 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 ding. You're, you're it. You're on top of it, Peter. Good work. Rocky for life. Notice that right after that, right? I like to think that it was a little while longer. Who knows? Maybe it's just like, let's get down on this hill. And then Jesus says, hey, by the way, this is going to happen. Maybe it was hours. Maybe it was minutes after that happened. Whatever length of time, there's a conversation where Jesus says, by the way, you know what the Messiah needs to do? To die so that he can live. And Peter's like, no, you're wrong. You've been right about everything else. You know, you can predict the future, all this stuff. But you're wrong. You're wrong. I won't let that happen and Jesus says, you know who you are? I gave you a new name last week. Like, you know, I've, I've, I've messed up. Your name was Peter. It's really Satan. You are Satan. I love this because Peter is more Satan than Satan is. That's good work, people. Like that guy, that's a swing. If you're going to go top to bottom, you know, you, you know, usually it started from the bottom. Now you're here, you're here, and then you go down to the bottom. That was the life of Peter because he did not have it clear. Why? Because Peter just said, hey, Jesus, this is your way. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me, dude? Have you learned anything? Can you not see what I'm trying to do? Is that this kingdom is a kingdom of power, but it's a kingdom of unexpected power. Because power is normally claimed through might. But in this power, it will be claimed by laying down, by offering. And by the way, as we go to the end of the book, what happens there when Jesus is ready to be betrayed? What does Peter do? Does Peter's like, oh, I remember the lesson now. He's just like, no, ninja, right? Like he pulls out swords and starts chopping off people's ears and stuff. And Jesus is like, Peter, just stop it. Why? Because Peter, you're acting just like Satan. Now, I always had a problem 
when I was trying to explain through the lineage of Exodus because we saw the parallel of what happened. Matthew's trying to say, hey, just as Jesus went on this journey, he's making the journey that God's people did coming out of Egypt. And there's so many things that check right here. But you know what does not check out is that the involvement of Satan in this book in the New Testament does not parallel that in the book of Exodus because Satan does not make an appearance in the book of Exodus. He is absent. But it's interesting when I read Matthew chapter 16 and what he says to Peter, what does he say when it comes down to, hey, Peter, this is why you're acting like Satan? Because you don't have in mind the concerns of God. You have in mind humans' concerns. And then I was like, oh, I missed it. Satan is present in the book of Exodus. Satan is the Israelites themselves. Satan is the very people that God is trying to see. In the book of Exodus, the people who are trying to thwart the concerns of God for their human concerns are God's very people. So I'm like, Eureka! I just did that. You should, we should just let it reminate how beautiful that walk right there was. And as much as I want to just woo, 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 let the resonance just fill the room, then I realize, oh crap, this is the worst. Because if God's people were Satan, and if Peter, Jesus is Rocky, if he was Satan, then really, <laughs> I'm Satan. That is the revelatory moment of this sermon. And you really, if you want to derail this church altogether, you would just take this sound clip. Hey, everybody, good morning. My name is Steve. I'm Satan. And that will probably ruin the rest of the church, the history, because people are like, what kind of church is that go? A Satanist church. But in some ways, I guess it's true, because what is the definition of Satan? When we have in mind the concerns of humanity more than concerns of God, friend, we become Satan. <laughs> so as much as I want to dog Peter for being, Peter was more Satan than Satan is, the problem is I'm more Satan than Peter is, so I'm like an nth degree higher. And unfortunately, you know, you all go to this church or you're at least here today, so you're culpable just by being here. But I'm gonna say that we're all culpable by being here. See, friends, this is the problem when we try to look at Satan. It's one of the reasons that we love him as a spiritual device is because it gives us an easy enemy, right? Within storytelling, there's always something that the hero must overcome, but we love it when it's just a really bad guy, right? The one thing that the Marvel movies do so well is they just have the best villains, right? So it gives you something to overcome. So that's why we like Satan being there, right? It's like, hey, everything's good and good. God's happy. I'm doing great stuff. Something goes bad. Well, that was Satan. Right? It's just this convenient excuse. But the reality is when I open up the Bible, I see that, friends, despite my best times, when I am killing it, very often, I'm Satan incarnate. I'm the one who is thwarting what God is trying to do. I'm being a stumbling block to him. He's telling me to get behind him because I have in current concern the things of my life, the, the goals that I want, the, the, the CV that I am achieving, more so than I'm just saying, where is the kingdom of God and how can I join in on that? When I am an impediment to Jesus, I become Satan. 
And that's the reality. When I look at what the Bible says about Satan, it's far less concerning that it talks about this guy who does things. It's much more convicting that I realize that I grab a pitchfork, put a Velcro tail to my rear end, and start being mischievous because I act like Satan. So here's the deal. How then should we live so we do not become Satan? And in this gluten-filled sermon, I think it comes to something that Jesus says in John chapter 6. And he tells us, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. Do you see how that connects from Matthew chapter 16 and what Jesus said to Peter? If I am truly consuming the bread of life, it's one of the reasons it's tied into us taking communion, right? We think of the consumption of Jesus' bread of life. Why? Because he sustains us. Maybe all this talk of bread has made you hungry slash hangry right now. And that's fine. It's something we do every day. But spiritually, I need to consider that, look, Jesus is my spiritual food. The consumption of him in his way and who he is changes my relationship with God, changes my relationship with my neighbors and my world. After Jesus tells Peter, hey, you're looking a lot like Satan, he says this, and I think this is the key. And this is the landing point of this. What does it mean for us to make it through this journey, to make it out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land? What does it take there? After Jesus calls Peter Satan, we get this. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 25. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for somebody to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The Son of Man is going to come into his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Be his disciple. Don't be the devil. Find yourself in who Jesus is. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Jesus. We thank you for these illustrations. And Father, where we become Satan, we ask for your forgiveness. Where we have tripped you up from doing what you need to do, Father, we apologize. And we ask that as we go out this week, that people might see us as the keepers of the, king, the keys to the kingdom of heaven and not the proprietors at the gates of hell. Thank you for sending your son Jesus. Thank you for his life and his love and his death and for making us new. Help us to take that out this week to the world. In the name of your son Jesus, amen.